Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Tonight is week number three, or if you're keeping track, it is day 15 in our 52-day journey through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is found in the Old Testament. It's part of 12 books of Old Testament history. It is a history book that tells us about this man named Nehemiah. You see, in Israel's history, after the golden years of King David and King Solomon, Jerusalem was captured and ransacked by the Babylonians. And so at that time, Everyone who lived in Jerusalem and in Judah and in Israel, they were taken, captured, and they lived 800 miles north in uh, Babylon, which eventually was conquered then by Persia. So by the time we get to Nehemiah's story, it is 300 years after the exile, and Nehemiah is now living in the house of the king as the cupbearer to the king. So week one, we talked about rebuilding your purpose. We believe that God has a kingdom-centric purpose for everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, that he has a kingdom-centric purpose for your life. And we watched how in week one, Nehemiah had his purpose rebuilt. He was someone who saw himself as a cupbearer to an earthly king. And as God rebuilt his purpose, he turned into a son of the heavenly king with a heavenly Purpose. In week two, we talked about rebuilding your confidence, and we watched Nehemiah's confidence soar. He was someone who saw a task that was bigger than himself, who once said, then I was terrified. And yet, when Nehemiah was grounded in God's spirit and grounded in God's truth, God rebuilt his confidence, and he had this new boldness about his awareness of what God had called him to do and what God had made possible for him. So at the end of last week, Nehemiah is packing his bags in Persia, and he is getting ready to take this journey all the way down to the holy city of Jerusalem. He is packed up. The king has helped him with supplies. He has the supplies he needs to rebuild the walls that are around Jerusalem, and he also has people to come and help him do this. And so he begins to make this journey, and where that journey starts is where we're going to pick up today. And we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. And we're going to see where Nehemiah starts. So Nehemiah 2, verse 11 and 12 says this. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night Taking only a few others with me, I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. Can we pray as we get started? Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would be working right now in this room. Without you, it's just a book. But with you, you bring this text to life, and it can change us. It can reposition our hearts. It can allow us to be transformed by your word. We love you. I pray that you would do that work in us tonight as we seek after you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This is really interesting to me. So Nehemiah, he is here, and he... He comes into town, and he doesn't come into town with a big announcement. He's not coming in with trumpets saying, hey, I'm the guy to rebuild the walls of the city. He comes in very 
quietly. The Bible tells us the first thing that he did when he shows up is he does nothing. He comes in town for three days and doesn't tell anyone why he's there. And, And I mean, for them... Nehemiah coming to town, this was a big deal. Like, if you were in the neighborhood and you saw Nehemiah moving across town, I mean, he's coming in with all of these people. He's got these permissions from the Persian king. Like, you're peeking through the blinds. You're like, who is this guy? What's his story? What does he want? Is he single? And so you're seeking after this information, and yet Nehemiah doesn't tell anyone. What he does is he waits three days, and after three days has passed, Nehemiah sneaks out at night. And I think there's something here. I think there's something here about protecting the purpose that God has given you in your life. That yes, there are going to be people who celebrate with you when you discover God's purpose for your life and who cheer you on from the beginning. But there are also going to be critics and skeptics and people who will not be cheering you on. And Nehemiah has this practice where he says, God's given me this purpose and I just, I just need a moment. I need a private moment to figure out what my next step is going to be. And so he sneaks out at night to see what the walls of Jerusalem look like. And when he does, he finds out that the walls of Jerusalem are torn down and worn down and things are not in a great shape. Historians uh, tell us that the walls of Jerusalem at that time would have been about two and a half miles long all the way around. They would have encompassed about 220 acres of land, and then with them they had ten gates, so ten different entry points. So this is this is a huge project, and Nehemiah is walking around in the dark trying to see what shape it's in, and it's in really, really terrible shape. If you have ever built a fence around your backyard, this is nothing like this. So this is giant two-foot or three-foot wide blocks of limestone that are in shambles. This is a huge project. In, in the verses that follow, Nehemiah explains that even his donkey couldn't get through them because the rubble was just everywhere. And Nehemiah is here in the middle of the night, 800 miles away from the place that he knew to be home, on a mission from God with a kingdom-centric purpose, and he looks around and he sees nothing but devastation. And I want to know what he was thinking that night. You know, we can't know exactly, but based on what Nehemiah does next, I have a guess that I want to share with you. And so here's my guess of what Nehemiah was thinking that night. My guess as he was walking around that city, looking at the ruins, seeing how the walls were torn down and worn down, and he had one sentence rotating in his head over and over again. And that sentence, I think, was, I can't do this by myself. I, I can't do this. This is just too much. It's too big. It's too, I won't know how to get started, and I certainly won't know how to get done. This is too much. I can't do this by myself. I want to tell you that that sentence is one of God's favorite things to hear from you coming in prayer. When you start off a prayer to your Heavenly Father, and the first words you say are, I can't do this by myself, God says, good. Good. We're, we're on track here. You know, in Eastern culture, their communities are designed, their traditions are designed to make communal living a very central part of their existence. So in Eastern culture, it is very natural to live your life for your family or for your community or for your religion. In Western culture, where we live, things are much more individualistic. We say crazy things like, you be you. And we think of ourselves as 
only employee at the corporation of self. And so it is your job to protect and work for and guard after your happiness, and you're the only one on that job. And so it would be a waste of time for you to spend a lot of energy worrying about someone else's happiness, because if you're worried about their happiness, then who's going to worry about your happiness? So you take care of you, they'll take care of them, and we live very isolated with our goals and our ambitions, and thinking this way can lead to a very self-centered, selfish way of living. You know, listen to this. When God gives you a kingdom-centric purpose, it is the supernatural antidote to selfishness. So why? Because his kingdom-centric purpose isn't about you, and it cannot be accomplished by you. You cannot do this by yourself. Last week, we talked about how your kingdom-centric purpose will always go beyond your ability. And yes, that's kind of the point. If you could do it by yourself, you'd get done. You'd look back and you'd say, look what I did. And God is not interested in being your sidekick. God likes it when you start off your conversations with him by saying, I can't do this by myself. I want to just pause here and I wanted to Take a moment and meditate on that because, again, we live in a very Western culture. We live in America. We live in a land where we really push that that rugged individualism of I can do this. I can make this happen if I would just try harder, if I would just be more independent, if I would be more autonomous, then I can take care of myself by myself. And it's a really, it's a concept that's very contrary towards scripture. And so what I want to do is let's just take a moment, and we're going to do this three times through, and you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but I'm going to breathe in, I'm going to breathe out, and then I'm going to say, I can't do this by myself. And if you feel comfortable, would you join me, and let's just do that three times together, and allow that truth to kind of land into our spirits tonight. Let's do that. So we're going to breathe in, we're going to breathe out, I can't do this by myself. We're going to breathe in. I'm going to breathe out. I can't do this by myself. And we're going to breathe in. And we're going to breathe out. I can't do this by myself. Do you feel, do you feel that? Do you feel that the struggle that we go through most of our days totally convinced that if we would just try hard enough, we could pull this off? We could make everything, we could make all the plates keep spinning. God loves it when you walk to him and say, I can't do this by myself. So if we can't do this by ourselves, what are we going to do? Well, let's look back at Nehemiah. Let's see what he did and what we can learn about what we do when we understand that we can't do this by ourselves. Let's skip down to verses 16 through 18. This is Nehemiah chapter 2, 16 through 18. It says this, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, so this is the morning after he had this nighttime walk around Jerusalem. You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us Rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's, the plural form, let's rebuild the wall. 
So they began the good work. So this is really, really, really great news. This is exactly what Nehemiah wanted. He spent the night before uh, looking at how big the project was, about how he could not do this by himself. And so the next day he wakes up with a clear plan, and his clear plan looks like this. I need a team. This cannot be done by one person. So the only way I'm going to pull this off is if I find like-minded people who are going to do this with me. If I can find godly people, hardworking people, willing people to come alongside me, we might be able to pull off this project. And if we can do it with the blessing of God, we will pull off this project. But the one step that I can't step, that I can't skip, is this step. And I need a team. Don't miss this tonight. You need a team. You can't do this by yourself. If you're going to accomplish God's kingdom-centric purpose for your life, you need a team. And you might say, but Dan, church people are weird. It's strange. I walk in. They're sitting at tables. I don't know where to sit. And they're, they're weird, and they're not the same you know, age, ethnicity, or background as I am, and it's uncomfortable. And uh, my mom, she's tough to talk to. She talks about politics all the time, and I can't deal with that. And, you know, grandpa's just lost his mind, and I, my best friend had a baby, and so now they're not going to talk to me anymore. They're in their own party. And it's just difficult. I Sometimes I just think it would be better if I just did this all by myself. Friends, it's not true. It would not be better. You cannot do this by yourself. You need a team. And yes, relationship is difficult. And yes, it takes work. A lot of you may have some negative influences in your life that need to be replaced with positive influences, but they don't need to be erased. They need to be replaced because you need a team in your life to make it through. You will not accomplish God's kingdom-centric purpose for your life without a team. I want to take 60 seconds just to skim through all of Nehemiah chapter 3. If you're looking at it on your phone or on your Bible, um, it'll be good for you to scan over it with me. I'll remind you that Nehemiah is a history book, and in history books, names matter and lists matter. Nehemiah chapter 3 is nothing but a list of everyone who helps Nehemiah on the wall. It tells you who they were and what part of the wall they worked on. In Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll see listed all of the 10 gates that we had talked about and who worked on each one of those entry points, and it lists all kinds of of people. There are priests who do some of the work. Uh, people who live inside the city do some of the work, and people from outside of the city travel into Jerusalem to do some of the work. A goldsmith is listed. A manufacturer is listed. Famous people and regular people are listed who all came together to be on this team. And none of these names may mean anything to you today, but I want to remind you of how much it meant to them and how much it meant to their families. If you were living in the hundred years after Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, you might be someone who could look on that list and go, my grandpa's in Nehemiah chapter 3. He's there. He helped Nehemiah rebuild that section of the entry gate by the sheep gate. That's what he rebuilt, and he helped Nehemiah. My grandpa was on the team, and that would be an awesome feeling. Like, my orthodontist was on the team with Nehemiah. Isn't that so cool? My grandma, you know, you can't find her name on the list because historians of that time were pretty chauvinistic, but grandma was there and she helped feed them and house the workers and she helped care for the children. My grandma was on Nehemiah's team. 
This is a great feeling. It is one of the reasons that I love being part of this church is because I get to be on the team. This Sunday morning, we are going to celebrate baptisms. There's a bunch of people that are getting baptized for the first time, declaring a new day, a new moment of commitment to the relationship with Christ. It is awesome. I haven't seen that list but from what I know, I don't have any personal connection with the people who've made that decision. I wasn't uh, specifically a part of their step of coming to know Christ. But I'm on the team. I'm on the team, and I get to celebrate with them because we belong together. We're part of the body of Christ, and it is awesome to be on a team. As the great lyricist Taylor Swift once said, there is no me in team. Nope. Other way, there is no I in team, but there is a me, and I belong here. So you can't do this without me. I can't do it without you, but you also can't do this without me. I am part of the team. God wants you to be part of the team, and this pulls our hearts towards this calling, and it makes me want to ask a really important question, and this question is going to guide the rest of our talk tonight, and the question is this. What kind of team member are you? What kind of team member are you? Are you someone who Nehemiah is trying to recruit? Are you someone who God is trying to recruit for a kingdom-centric purpose. I want to focus on this question, and I want to identify three godly characteristics of the ideal team player. And I want to use these three characteristics to help us evaluate ourselves. I want to give credit where it's due. A lot of uh, what I'm about to say was coming from a Christian leadership coach by the name of Patrick Lencioni. He's published a bunch of booksellers. If you're interested in learning more about him, just catch me after service, and I will help you follow that path and keep the learning coming. The first godly characteristic I want to name is for us to be humble. Proverbs 11.2 says, pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 27.2 says, let someone else praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, not your own lips. If you want to be the ideal team player, the first thing you need to be is humble. Lower yourself and lower your agenda. Think about what benefits the group, what benefits the cause. You know, pride shows up in many forms. You know, sometimes it's the person who walks into the room, into every room, like they're the lead character in everyone else's story. But sometimes pride shows up with a person who doesn't walk into the room because they're terrified of what everyone else will think of them. So the great C.S. Lewis said it this way one time, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So whether or not you're the person who's staring in front of the mirror thinking, wow, I look thin and beautiful and brilliant, or you're the person sitting in front of the meal, in front of the mirror, saying, Wow, I'm not very thin, beautiful, or brilliant. You're still a person standing in front of a mirror staring. We have uh, guidelines for our stage attire that we do here at the church for worship teams of different guidelines we give them about what to wear and not to wear when they're on stage. If you have any opinions or uh, mean comments to say, please send a strongly worded email to tjensen at oakcreekag.org. But one of the things we tell our team members is we say, hey, if you get up in the morning, you're getting ready to be on worship team this Sunday, and you look in the mirror and you say, wow, I look fabulous, go change clothes because you're not doing it right. 
keep it simple, keep the attention off of yourself, and be humble. Humility is an extremely important part of being an ideal team player. God, like his characteristic number two is to be hungry. And I don't mean food. I mean be driven, be determined, be persistent, be hardworking. Proverbs 21, 25 says, despite their desires, the lazy will come to ruin for their hands refuse to work. Proverbs 14, 23 says, work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. If you want to be the ideal team player, the second thing you need to be is hungry. Laziness is a curse that no one can cast off of you. It is heartbreaking to see how many help wanted signs are in our city right now. If you are in debt, can I challenge you tonight? Go get a second job. Go train for a new job that makes a bigger salary than what you're currently made and get hungry. Get to work. Be hardworking. Be driven. You know, if uh, workaholics are people who identify themselves as their work, and that's not what we're talking about, people with hunger never do the minimum. They show up five minutes early. They stay five minutes late because they are passionate about the work. If you feel lazy in your body, wake up, get active, eat well, and get hungry for the work that God has called you to do. Get moving and be passionate and be determined. Godly characteristic number three is to be smart. And I don't want us to think of smart as a fixed number. Smart is having a growth mindset, being more smart tomorrow than you were six months before, being more skilled, more educated, more excellent. Proverbs 18, 15 says this, intelligent people are always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. Proverbs 9, 9 says, instruct the wise and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous and they will learn even more. If you want to be the ideal team player, the third thing you need to be is smart. There are all kinds of smart. There's book smart and street smart, verbal intelligence and emotional intelligence. You know, when I write the sermon, it's important to me that I am smart with what I do. It's important to me that I work hard, that I'm going to double check my references. I usually write twice as much as what you hear, and then I cut everything down because when I'm handling God's word, I want to be smart. I want to be intelligent in the care of what something that is really, really important and something that is really important to me. I want you to be smart with the tasks that God has put in front of you. Be more skilled than you were six months ago. Be smarter. Be more professional with the things that God has put in front of you. And excel. Always be learning. Be smart. So when I look at these three things that are in this, is it a Venn diagram or is it like a tri-diagram? I'm not sure. When I look at the three things that are in here about the ideal team player, the ideal team player is humble, hungry, and smart. It tells me that in the middle are all three of these things, which teaches me that these things are not, these three things are not options. These characteristics are not a best one or best two out of a three, but that we are targeting for people who are all three. And the reason that's true is because when you are lacking in one of these areas, some strange things start to happen. So let's explore that. So let's start off by looking at the person who is humble and hungry, but not smart. 
So they're humble, they're here for all the right reasons, they're excited to be on the team, and they are hungry, they're really energetic, and they're going to give it their best, and they're going to work super hard, but they're not smart, they're not trained, they're not skilled. We're going to call this person the accidental mess maker. So this is the person who comes in, and they're just, they're brand new on the job, and they're here, and they're really excited about it, but they're going to keep making messes because they are untrained. If you find yourself having this trouble in your life, you might be the accidental mess maker who has not taken the time to be skillful in the things that you do. And so even well-intentioned and even humble, you're going to keep making messes. The next box I want to fill is on the left side here. And this is the person who is humble and smart, but not hungry. So the person who says, hey, I'm here for the right reasons, and I'm really smart, I know how to do the job, but I'm lacking that drive, and we're going to call this person the lovable slacker. So you've got this person on your team. You might be this person, and everyone loves having the lovable slacker on the team because they're so friendly, and they're really nice, and they're really joyful, and they really know what they're doing. They're very, very smart, but they lack the drive. So if you need it to get done on time, you're probably going to ask someone else. They're going to take it about halfway, and they're going to finish it the rest of the way, maybe tomorrow, and, and maybe not. The last group I want to fill in here is in the bottom, and this is the person who is smart and hungry, but not humble. And we're going to call this person the skillful politician. So, and this is tricky because a skillful politician can be so good, they're so skilled that they do a really good job of presenting themselves as humble because they can interview well and they know the right words to say. And when you meet them, they just seem so humble. But as you get to know them, as you see the pattern of their life lay out, as you see their practices get to work, you realize that they're very skilled and they're very determined, but they're just not humble. They have their goals placed in front of others' goals. When I look at these things, you know, it's easy for us and just kind of fun to think about the people that we know and to go, oh, I know that person. Oh, I know this person. Um, that's fun. I'm glad you enjoyed that. But the more productive <laughs> task for us tonight is to find ourselves, is to find ourselves and to look here and say, Lord, where, where am I excelling as a ideal team player, and where am I lacking? That if God, if you've called me to be on someone's team, if you're calling other people to be on my team, if I need a team in order to be successful, in order to follow your, in order to follow your will, what, where am I excelling, and, and where, where am I lagging tonight? Because I think if you looked at those three, humble, smart, and hungry, I think most everyone in the room would have a fairly easy time identifying maybe one that they're really great at. You know, one that they go, that, that connects with me. I really feel like that comes very natural for me to be in that spot. And I think we all could find one of the three that we would say, and you found my weakness. That there's, there's the spot where I want the Holy Spirit to work in me and to build me up. Working in teams is not easy. I think for the people in the room who have children or the people in the room who are in college and that dreaded thing that happens when a teacher says, it's going to be a group project. And all the real smart kids go, and the lovable slacker goes, yes. <laughs> Starts recruiting friends to do his homework. Good guy, nice guy. Life is a group project. Following Christ is a group project. Your spiritual maturity 
It's a group project. And I want to begin to think about the teams that are represented in this room tonight. I want to ask you the question of who's on your team and whose team are you on? I have a lot of marriages that are in the room. I think for those in the room who are married, that kind of tops off the, the first start of your list of whose team you're on, of someone that you committed to, whether you were fully aware of it at the moment or not, to be on their team the rest of your life, the rest of their life. I think about family groups that are represented, you know, of a, a parent or a child who says, I'm, you know, mom, dad, you took care of me, but I'm going to be on your team until the day that you go to heaven. I'm on your team. I think about people who are employed here that are different corporations where God's got you on a team in that space. And I think about the greater spiritual teams that exist in a church of a body of Christ that is united for the call and they are working together to see God's kingdom come here on earth just as it is in heaven. I think of the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're all on that team, and I know that group projects can be challenging. What I want to do tonight is I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for the teams that you're on. I want to pray that God would continue to grow you. I think we have all felt those kind of abandonment moments where a team brings so much stress or anxiety into us, we feel like just walking away, like just calling it quits, breaking out, and just being alone, that alone feels safer, alone feels more predictable. And I want to pray for those who feel alone tonight, that God would encourage you to get back in the game, and God would encourage you to seek after a godly team to surround you with. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the teams that are represented in this room tonight. I thank you for the people that you have given to support us. I thank you, Lord, that you have surrounded us with loving people. I thank you that you have put us into a loving church. I pray, Lord, that you would allow um, your will to be done. I pray for the teams that we're on. Help us, God, to be humble and hungry and smart. Help us be that team member that brings life to the places that you would have us serve. Help us be the people who brings new life to those places. We love you. We need you. I want to pray a prayer of blessing over every person that's in this room tonight. I know that you are the all-knowing God, and in that I know that you've seen every person who's walked into this room. I pray that your spirit would rest on them. For people wherever they're at in their journey, for people who are seeking, people who are curious, people who have been faith secure for decades and decades, I pray that you would minister to us. I pray that your spirit would comfort us and that you would give new strength to us. We love you tonight. We need you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.